When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Sarah, I have to ask you before we jump into this episode, what are your feelings on semi-threatening mammals? Are we talking like bears or are we talking raccoons? Uh... Let's split the difference. Red pandas. Oh, okay. Yeah. In that case, sign me up. Okay. Adorable slash, you know, sharp teeth, but adorable enough to cuddle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's fluffy. I'll cuddle it. All right. Great. Well, you're in luck because we are going to be talking about Pixar's Turning Red on this week's episode, a film about a girl who transforms into a red panda at slightly inopportune times. My kind of superpower. Uh, Later in the episode, we will also be talking about Kiki's Delivery Service, which is about a young girl who happens to have some special abilities of her own. (laughs) And Sarah's superpower is recommending very good films. Spoiler alert for that discussion. That's coming up on episode 325 of Seeing and Believing. Let's go. What I want, say what I want. 24 7, 365. I know, it's a lot. But I don't got time to mess around. Oh, about that hustle, am I right? Poor town. This is gonna be the best year ever. And nothing's gonna get in my way. Yes, listeners, we're here on episode 325 of Seeing and Believing, and this is the first episode since you uh, joined on as the the new co-host where we've done two animated films back-to-back as a review, so... First uh, one with any animated films, I think, at this point. Yeah. I don't think we've done any animated films together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably right. So, <laughs> So, and, you know, it's definitely not one that has involved uh, transformations into uh, giant furry animals of any kind. So, you know, don't... Uh, just before we get started, you're not going to get too excited about anything and... Become an opossum or something. Yeah. I make no guarantees. That would be terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) I am not a fan of opossums. Let the record show. Listeners, we are going to be talking about two animated movies on this episode. Uh, In the second segment, we are going to be talking about a Hayao Miyazaki film, Kiki's Delivery Service, a deep cut from Studio Ghibli that I am getting acquainted with this week. So look for that coming up. But for now, we'll turn our attention to the new Pixar film, the... uh, kind of the equivalent to Studio Ghibli, or at least was, Mm -hmm. in the States. And they've come out with a new release for the Disney Plus service titled Turning Red. Here's the film's official synopsis. Mei Li, voiced by Rosalie Chang, is a confident, dorky 13-year-old torn between staying her mother's dutiful daughter and the chaos of adolescence. 
Her protective, if not slightly overbearing mother, Ming, voiced by Sandra Oh, is never far from her daughter, which is an unfortunate reality for her, and her reality gets even more complicated when she discovers a new development in herself. Whenever she gets too excited, which is practically always, she suddenly transforms into a giant red panda. So definitely an opportunity for Pixar to flex its uh, its storytelling muscles as well as its hair physics muscles in, mm -hmm. in the animation department. So I'm actually kind of curious to take the temperature of the room as far as Pixar in general goes, Sarah, and then uh, maybe get a sense for, for you, where does Turning Red fall in the pantheon of Pixar releases? Oh, man. Um, I love... Older Pixar, especially, um, just the level of imagination um, and uh, thought that they put into their storytelling. Um, I think actually one of the first movies that we ever talked about pre before Sarah being a co-host was uh, a Pixar movie. Right. We talked about Soul mm -hmm. um, and uh, kind of that like level of, of thought and emotional storytelling. Um in general, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of the later Pixar movies. And I also, I'm dying to know, why is it that they have, I feel like every other movie that they've been releasing in the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, somebody's turning into an animal. And that's like <laughs> shorthand for some big like personal development. So I don't know how I quite feel about that. I felt positively about this movie overall but i have i have some questions about it so where did it lie for you yeah so i'm a lot like you in that later pixar has i don't know for me it's it's acquired kind of a lot of their new films with the exception of soul i think soul was probably their strongest film in a while mm -hmm. but in general their releases of the last say five years at least have felt they've gotten this kind of schematic feeling to them where it feels like the stories they're telling have been uh, created in uh, a writer's room meeting. And there's, there's very much kind of a, a tool set that they're very comfortable using. And to me, it's kind of come to the point where they've got a hammer and every storytelling problem looks a little bit like a nail. Oh man. And for me, Turning Red kind of exemplifies a lot of those poor tendencies. I I didn't hate this movie. I thought it was pretty mediocre, though, which mm. coming from a studio that I think, you know, I think WALL-E is just oh, maybe one of the best animated films of the 2000s. Of all time? Uh, of all time. I wouldn't fight you too hard on that. I mm -hmm. think it's a, a tremendous movie. They've done so well for themselves that... Even though there's nothing actively terrible about Turning Red, and there are parts of it that I genuinely like, I, I felt that this is a film that, for all of the deep uh, personal significance that obviously carries for uh, the film's director in terms of just the, the overall concept, the, the nuts and bolts of the storytelling just feel very almost phoned in. Hmm. Hmm. Um, is that in terms of like the plot or is that in terms of the way that the characters relate to each other because um plot wise i wasn't too enamored of what was going on um where this movie really worked for me was in the little details like there's a lot of little pieces of it that very much feel like um i don't know it it feels the way that a 13 year old would tell a story like everything's a little bit heightened everything's a little bit over the top there are like fun asides where are it's almost like someone's doodling in the margins of a notebook um mm -hmm. as they're telling a story and there's even a great like moment in the movie where um 
May actually like doodles in a notebook and then it becomes a, a significant plot point. But there's a lot of like fun little details like the jelly bracelets and the friendship bracelets and like the little stick on earrings that I noticed that felt very much of a time and of a place. And that level of specificity and care um, I think were something that resonated with me. So I don't, I don't know if that worked for you or not. I, th- I think it. I think the details is where the film does shine. It, it okay. evokes very specifically, you know, uh, 2002 mm-hmm. uh, is where is where the set. And if you were a kid or even maybe a, a slightly older teenager during during those years, you have very specific memories of the fashion of the kinds of uh, of gadgets that that were popular at the time. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the film really is maybe at its best when it kind of sinks into those minutiae a lot. For me, I think the the problem is just in the overall predictability of the story beats that it's trying to hit. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as May's mother tells her, you have this red panda inside you and you must learn to control it. And there's going to be a ritual where we're going to banish it forever. You pretty much know exactly where the movie's going to end up. Mm-hmm. You know, if I mean, when you've when the biggest movie probably in terms of just the most popular of the last twenty years is Frozen, which is all about a young girl coming to terms with this power that is uh, very uh, great, but also can be very destructive, and has to come to terms with how do I control this or do I be myself. That internal conflict is something that's kind of been hashed and rehashed over time. And I feel like Turning Red reiterates a lot of those story beats without transfiguring them enough for, for it to feel fresh to me. Hmm, yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that um, you knew what was going to happen with the plot and like it felt like it was kind of rehashing a, a plot where someone has something like difficult or dangerous inside of them. Um, that they have to come to terms with because I think my main issue with this movie, and I, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did, um, is that I didn't really feel that sense of danger much at all. Um, so May turns into a giant red panda. She's absolutely adorable. <laughs> There's some destruction involved, but I never really quite felt that the stakes of the movie that everybody in the movie was saying like were applicable really felt like there was something that I was actually feeling, if that makes sense. Like, there's this question of, like, if you keep letting this giant red panda out, eventually it's going to be harder and harder to happen. But May's inner panda is a very, like, cute and cuddly and kind character in and of herself. And so I didn't really see the problem with that, other than, like, maybe there's an issue of scale. She's going to bump into things. She'll be a little bit more destructive because she's a little bit bigger or something. But, um... I don't know. I there's there seems like there was a little bit of a disconnect in that internal conflict there for me. Well, and, and that's and that's kind of what I mean about this simultaneously feeling like there are parts of it that were very personal for the mm-hmm. uh, for the director in terms of just you know evoking um, uh, a very specific experience of overbearing parents of the way that that interacts with her Chinese heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, though that all feels very specific and very lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the parts where it it feels like the the movie, in order to be more marketable, perhaps, or I, I don't necessarily want to speculate on why these changes were made, but it does feel like they've got this basic concept and they're trying to figure out how to make it work in kind of the framework of a standard animated mm-hmm. children's comedy. And I think maybe that's kind of what you're 
you're you're noticing when when you talk about it feels like the red panda is a little bit confused as a symbol like mm-hmm. what what it's supposed to symbolize what the metaphorical significance of it is because you're right that it doesn't feel all that dangerous so it, it it's kind of shoehorned into a kids comedy framework when the basic emotional beats of the story are kind of pulling in a different direction yeah yeah i think you either have to have the three-part structure or you have to have the panda and you can't really quite have both maybe um i would have loved this as a hangout movie like no outside conflict no need to go to the big concert that's in town or anything like that um just more hanging out both with the family and with uh may's friends who are delightful characters by the way um Two, I'll, I'll give you two out of three on her friends being delightful. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, which one bothers So, you? okay. So there are three characters in, in this film um, and, or I'm sorry, three friend characters in this film. And two of them are, you know, there's kind of like the deadpan one and there's kind of the, you know, the, uh, the um, very um, kind of the, the ringleader, the, the redhead. Mm-hmm. And then there's like skater. Yeah. 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 Kind of a, a skater girl vibe. And then there's, a third character who kind of wears lavender overalls and is f- kind of feral. <laughs> like I don't really know what her personality is other than that she's loud and yells like she basically yells a lot. Oh. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't do much for me, but your mileage may vary, I, I guess. Yeah, her name's Abby. She's played. She's voiced by Hayen Park. And honestly, like as a former feral teen myself, I saw quite a bit of myself. Uh, okay, her. well, uh, no, no, no offense uh, meant, I guess. No but um, it, it does it does feel like there are um, getting back to the film. It just it does feel like there are elements that are kind of in a different movie from hmm. other elements. I think about, I found myself thinking a lot about Bo Burnham's eighth grade while watching huh. this film. Cause it's obviously, you know, set in a very much the eighth grade milieu, mm-hmm. but I, I think what Burnham's film does with, it, it, it evokes what it feels like to be an eighth grader, just in terms of, you know, you've got all this, there, there's all these, these strange changes happening. You're beginning to, you know, uh, not just notice the opposite sex, but want the opposite sex to notice you. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of insecurities. I think about like the pool party in eighth grade where oh, so great. where where Elsie Fisher's character, you know, steps out onto into the poolside and you know, there's this weird music playing on the soundtrack. And it's like she's stepping on onto the surface of an alien planet. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's wonderful and quirky and specific. And it makes you feel it makes you feel what the character is feeling. And I, I think where turning red falls down for me is it spends so much time telling us about how the red panda, you know, is this mess that she has inside her. And she's trying to worry about, you know, how do I reconcile what I want with what my mother wants? And there's so much talking about mm. her conflict, but it doesn't really make you, f- or at least it didn't really make me feel any of it. Yeah. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a level of pacing and tone, I think, because this, this movie starts off out of the gate, just very shouty and bright and loud. Um, again, feels very much like a 13 year old telling you a story, which is one of the things that I appreciated about it. Um, but maybe there could have been a little bit less of the direct address to camera. Like I'm going to tell you everything about myself and a little bit more of the, I'm going to show you a little bit more about myself, if that makes sense. That seems like it's a, it's a fairly common storytelling 
um, mechanic in a lot of animated movies lately. Like the Mitchells versus the Machines does something very similar. Yeah, I mean, as I guess as an aesthetic choice, I don't have a problem with it necessarily. Mm. I I think in just as the way that's turning red, the the parts I'm thinking about aren't even the parts where she's directly addressing the camera mm. or, or that really bright breezy feel to it. That's that's you know fine whatever i i think it's more just the conversations where the the movie is basically just grabbing you by the lapels and saying the red panda represents the emotions of adolescence it's it just it feels very much like the film doesn't trust its audience to really get it and i i feel like if it had leaned more into those details you were talking about earlier about making the setting feel really specific making the relationships feel really specific. I feel like that that's where the film's at strongest. I don't feel like it leans into those strengths very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I just, I wish that the Red Panda kind of like did symbolize like one specific thing, but I feel like that would also take away a little bit from that as well. I don't know, like being a teenager is is an extremely like emotionally confusing and tumultuous time and you don't really know what it is that you're feeling or dealing with and maybe you're feeling and dealing with like multiple things all at once so on the one hand um I could have used a little bit more clarity but on the other hand it did feel very much like a return to being a 13 year old for me so I I guess that worked for me um were there any details that like did work for you I think so getting back to you you're talking about how the red panda doesn't feel dangerous enough in moments Mm. uh the the times where um it did I actually felt were really subtle and it came all the way through the animation so where there's a point where May as the red panda kind of loses control of herself and basically tackles this boy who's been you know picking on her throughout the entire film and just kind of starts shaking him and and shouting at him and loses control and that moment the the animation um of the the panda's eyes of the panda's expressions and teeth mm-hmm. uh even the fur kind of seems almost to stand on end mm-hmm. i think those those moments really do kind of sell the fact that this is um something that may's not necessarily completely in control of that it is something that um, you know, like being an adolescent, sometimes your emotions just get the better of you and you just giving free reign to those can be exhilarating, but in a little bit of a scary way. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked mm-hmm. the the moments where we saw that. And again, a lot of that was conveyed simply through animation rather than through the dialogue. And I really wanted more of that. Yeah, I feel like there was there was a decent amount of like good animation details like for the physicality of the red panda as well. Like every time she's surprised, she kind of does this thing that red pandas do where like they put both of their paws up in the air and they like sort of like <laughs> wobble a little bit, I guess. Um, but then there's also some lovely like postures that um may takes on when she's in the red panda form like she's curled up and she's crying kind of in a ball um and you kind of feel like that knot of sadness at the center of of that posture i think um and then there's also a lovely detail where she's got tear tracks through the fur on her face as well Mm. and like the movie didn't really call very much attention to it which was why i appreciated that detail very much um so yeah i don't know like the the physicality overall i think worked for me but yeah i agree that that scene is a standout too yeah the i i think the the animation in is probably one of the film's strongest points mm-hmm. and what's interesting about it is that it's not 
you know, it obviously being CG, uh, computer animation, it's very much like faux 3D, mm-hmm. but it does uh, introduce kind of this much more anime feeling to it, just in the ways that the characters move, the way their facial expressions look. And it's kind of impressive how the film, um, I wouldn't call this a, a super handsome film, not in the way of something like Soul, where I, where I mm-hmm. thought that it played with, that film also played kind of with the character designs in the 3D space in, in interesting ways. And I don't know that Turning Red is on that level, but I did appreciate how Turning Red did kind of find an, a new art style to marry to its 3D animation in ways that it, it didn't feel like just completely boilerplate. And I appreciated that as well. I mean, I don't think it needs to necessarily be handsome because, again, this is it's a movie about a teenager. Like, there's Toronto is literally pastel in this movie. <laughs> I don't think you can get away with that in Seoul necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess it, it's probably just a, a question of uh, you know you know preference. I I really I remember loving the way that the New York City of Seoul was just kind of mm. this these warm fall colors and just I I don't know I I loved it and and turning red it's it is very colorful and I am all for very colorful bright movies especially in this day and age where it's kind of almost the the fashion to be more muted and desaturated mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's sort of wh- whether you prefer one or the other is, is probably a matter of taste um i want to kind of talk a little bit about the the vocal performances because we've talked a lot about the animation and the mm-hmm. the storytelling but uh i wanted to get your thoughts on on the vocal performances specifically um some of the the main characters so obviously we have sandra O oh, um mm-hmm. in the in the role of ming the uh her mother so yeah i just want to get your thoughts on uh what you thought of the vocal work in this film um i liked it i didn't recognize that it was sandra O oh, um as as the performer um which honestly is probably a good thing i feel like there's a kind of a tendency to cast very famous people i think um in animated movies and often i find that to be a bit of a distraction so um i don't know there's there's a bit of a a depth and a gravitas and um to her voice that i think worked quite well for me um and then uh i i don't know i i quite liked uh rosalie chang's turn as maylin herself like she she has kind of this like bubbly um quality to her voice that that worked for me um but the way that you asked that question makes me wonder like if there was anything that you didn't like i no 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 i actually said because i think the uh the the vocal work is probably one again one of the the Mm. film's uh, bigger strengths i liked sandra O a lot as ming i also wanted to call out um the the actor who voiced the father Jin, Mm. because uh, that is, I, and I have to give a shout out to him because I felt like he was just unfairly overlooked when uh, Kelly Reichert's first cow came out. Orion Lee mm-hmm. is uh, one of the co-leads of that film. And I just thought he was so tremendous in that film. Yeah. And I really liked the the work that he did as Jin uh, as the father, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, he's, you know, a very supporting role. He doesn't, he's... In, in some ways, he's kind of got the thinkless role, sort of the the bumbling background dad who's, you know, n- nevertheless very uh, warm-hearted. Um, but the way that Orion Lee um, j- lends his line readings, like this this very, this, this quietude that isn't, um, it's not meek, mm-hmm. but it's, 
it, it's it's not meek in in the negative sense. It's it's meek kind of almost in a beatitude sense. Yeah, if that makes yeah. Sense. I liked him a lot. There's film. a softness I think to his line reads where like it feels like he, this is someone who really truly cares about his daughter. And sometimes doesn't know how to say that. So he's just going to take action in order to do it. So when he does actually say something, you know that it means a lot. Um, like, yeah, just just a lovely sense of, I think, pacing and quietness uh, that works really well. I love Ryan Lee. I love him in First Cow so much, um, but I liked him in this too. We, we have to get a you know another plug for First Cow in here, even when we're talking about Pixar movies, because that's just the, the way seeing and being, believing roles. And, you know, I also thought, uh, and this is maybe where I kind of have the but addition to the thing that I liked. Oh, she- I think one of the reasons I liked Orion Lee so much is because that, that, more sedate pace and and the quietude that his character brings to the film is sorely needed in a movie that is a little louder and frenetic than I feel like it had to be. <laughs> again, 13-year-old kids. I, I don't really see too much of a problem with it. Uh, I mean, again, you know, mileage may vary. And it is it is a film where the the big climactic scene and kind of the conflict driving a lot of the the surface level plot is wanting to go to a concert uh, that's basically by this film world film world's version of of NSYNC. So you know it, it's it's a very specific aesthetic that they're going for there. Yeah, the payoff happens in a much quieter way too. At the risk of getting like just to this side of spoilers, I feel like the the real emotional payoff happens in a much quieter and more sedate way. And so that's part of the reason why that works for me. Okay. I, I agree to a point. It does. <laughs> and, and this is, again, where maybe we get to my complaint about Pixar feeling paint by numbers. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know if it was always, if the tear jerking moments were always calculated. And I'm just now seeing it because we've seen more Pixar movies now. But it does feel like the scene where May and her mother have a meeting of the minds, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, like... It works. I, it, the you know the filmmaking and the vocal performances they all work. There's nothing wrong with it, but it does feel like it's a song that I've heard played before, and mm. I kind of I, I I kind of wish for the days when Pixar surprised me a little bit more. Yeah, I think it surprised me enough to make me tear up a little bit, and then I was like, oh, there's no other way that this could have gone, and I think that's okay too. Um, yeah, I don't know, like liked it, didn't love it appreciated it quite a bit um and especially appreciated the specificity when it got really really specific and i mean the the other explanation is that i'm just a cold-hearted grump who just can't st- <laughs> who just can't appreciate a very nice story about a mother and her daughter <laughs> listeners if you have seen turning red which is currently streaming on disney plus and you have thoughts about it about whether my cold-hearted grumpiness is a problem or whether Pixar is the one who's wrong. <laughs> Please let us know. You can uh, tweet us at Pod on the Twitters or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Don't go anywhere. After this break, we're going to be taking a look at Hayao Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service.
So here we are having, you know, just kind of, in some ways, outlined in bright neon, uh, some of the differences between us as co-hosts. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's it's always fun when we kind of have those 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 moments where you know there's there's a little bit of a you know a clash or, or loggerheads because I don't know it keeps things lively on the show. I'm looking forward to a movie where like we're both reviewing something new that one of us absolutely loves and one of us absolutely hates. Like I'm I'm sort of dreading it, but I'm also really looking forward to it because I have no idea what that's going to be. Yeah, uh, my so I my my parents sometimes listen to the show and they still talk about the episode where Wade and I reviewed The Shape of Water because I had that as one of my favorite films of the year. Wade despised it. Incredible. And uh, apparently that was that was good listening. So listeners, uh, if you're still waiting for that day to arrive where Sarah and I just you know, absolutely go into fisticuffs over a certain film, one way that you can help the show keep going until we reach that promised land is by donating to our Patreon campaign. You can go there uh, at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcasts. While you're on there, it'll show you the different tiers at which you can pledge monthly, including some pretty popular ones. $8 a month will get you a personalized Netflix recommendation list from uh, Sarah and I. $10 a month will allow you to be a dictator for uh, the episode and tell us what film that we have to review on the air. So there's a lot of good stuff that you can uh, get by donating on that Patreon. There's also lower tiers too. If you just feel like, you know, you don't need a whole lot of swag. You just want to thank us for, you know, all the wonderful quality content that we deliver week in and week out. Uh, that's also a possibility at $3 or $5 a month. Um, but it's just, it's a great way to, uh, help keep the show going. And we really appreciate all of you listeners who uh, have visited and are already uh, helping send some of your hard-earned dollars our way. Yep. Thank you for helping us keep the lights on and keeping us in movie tickets, which is why we do this to begin And keeping with. us in, in an in-person recording booth. Listeners, you can't see it right now, but we are currently surrounded by handmade soundproofing uh, <laughs> materials that uh, Sarah has set up around the around the room. It's really impressive. And these sorts of developments are also partly made possible by uh, your uh, generous donations to the show. Yep. Um, also, come talk to us. Uh, we yes. enjoy, we really enjoy talking to each other about the movies that we're talking about. Um, we know that at least a few of you enjoy listening to us uh, because people keep listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, but come and keep the conversation going. Um, we love it when you tweet at us, whether we're right or wrong or have like other thoughts about movies. So um, this past weekend, um, we tweeted a question about what's a movie you wish that you'd watch as a kid, um, which is a question that's been kind of on my mind, just given the movie that we're about to talk about in our watch list section, uh, section coming up. Um, but, uh, we also got an answer from Christy Olson who said that she really wished that she'd seen the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers RKO musicals. Um, she says she'd pretty sure that she would have loved them as a kid, but didn't watch them until she was an adult. And then as an added bonus, uh, she sent us a scene that she says that she can't keep out of her head. Um, it's a dance class scene from the movie Swing Time, which is a movie that I need to catch up with. Yeah, there's, uh, a lot of Astaire Rogers. I've not... So this is one of the blind spots that'll probably be remedied at a future 
watch list segment. I've not seen a single Astaire Rogers film all the way through. I've seen clips, obviously, but I'm looking forward to catching up with those. Maybe after I see one like Christy, I'll I'll have wondered what took me so long to watch these films. So uh, that's definitely some great feedback. Thanks so much, Christy. And listeners, if you want to watch that dance scene, it's retweeted and ready to view, and you can also enjoy that along with us. Hard-earned dollars are great, but conversation is even better, and we love hearing from you listeners. Thanks for doing that. We're back here with the watch list segment, which, as we hinted in the previous segment, Sarah, this is a place where uh, we get a chance to maybe address some of the blind spots that we've had uh, in our cinephile careers, and we've got two people on the show for a reason. One, so that we can actually have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Two, so that we can help each other fill in those gaps and those blind spots. And this week we have uh, a really good one. Uh, The 1989 film from Hayao Miyazaki, Kiki's Delivery Service. This is a film about a 13-year-old witch in training named Kiki who leaves her family behind and moves to a new city by herself. There she has to figure out how to make her own way in the world and deal with her self-doubt about her witchy vocation and her place among other people. So uh, Sarah, I'm really curious to know before we jump into the actual discussion uh what made you pick this film for this watch list segment um well part of it was that it seemed like a pretty decent pairing with uh turning red um but also it's a stressful time out there it's time for a comfort movie i think um and this happens to be one of my all-time favorite comfort movies like whenever i'm feeling particularly anxious these are characters that i like to spend some time with um and just sit with and enjoy especially because Kiki, as a person who is, like, learning to be a person in the world, um, she feels very much like me as a kid. Like, I wish that I had had this movie when I was a child to grow up with, Um, but I don't, so I have the next best thing, which is I get to, I don't know, sit down and kind of feel very small alongside someone who also feels very small in a very big world and then realize like, ah, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And we'll get out of it again. So, yeah. And I 100% agree with you that this film does so well at making you feel those emotions again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I really like this film. I thought it was, it was so charming. Uh, charming is not the right word. I, I thought it was charming kind of for the first two thirds. It's like, oh, this is a very nice film, mm-hmm. you know, low stakes. It's just sort of, it's nice to be in the presence of these characters. It's nice to watch Kiki sort of throw herself into her delivery service and just kind of her quest to find herself with mm-hmm. such abandon. It's it's so wonderful. And then um, as the film kind of got into its last third, I, I realized, oh, this is making me feel what it's like to be a 13-year-old who sometimes just unaccountably feels left out or mm-hmm. unaccountably feels like they don't fit in. Not because anyone's necessarily making them feel that way. It's just sometimes you feel like Am I ever really going to make it? You know, mm-hmm. is there something wrong with me? Why do I have trouble relating with other people? Why am I the way that I am? Yeah. And I, I feel like this film does such a great job at not just sort of telling you that that's what she's feeling or trying to remind you through dialogue of what it feels like, but simply just portraying one character experiencing those things. And the filmmaking is so strong that you 
experience it along with her. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sensing a little bit of a dig at turning red, maybe. <laughs> you know, I had to get one last parting shot in there. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's allowed. Um, also, it's very difficult to measure up to Miyazaki. Like, if, if yes. you're going to compare anything else to literally any Miyazaki, I think you're, you're just going to come up short. And it's interesting because this, I think, is considered to be one of the like slightly lesser Miyazaki movies for whatever reason. And I don't mm. fully understand that. Um, just because it is so gentle and so enjoyable to watch. And um, maybe it's because there's like not really much of a plot to go along with it. Um, this is very much a hangout movie where there are little slice of life episodes and occasionally something will happen and Kiki needs to figure out like how to get out of a scrape or figure out like what to do next in order to continue her, her small business. Um, but the plot doesn't really matter quite so much as just spending time with these characters who are slowly growing up. And you don't even notice that they're growing up until after they've done it, which I think is one of the most like beautiful little magic tricks of this particular movie. When Kiki first moves to the city, She's sort of crashing through traffic and running into the street without looking to see if any cars are coming her way. And by the end of the movie, um, she's slowed down enough that she's going to run right up to the edge of that street, but then she's going to stop and she's going to check both ways. Mm. And then she's going to keep on going. Like she's still got that enthusiasm and zest for life, but she's a little bit older and a little bit wiser by that point. And I just, I love seeing that moment where she stops and looks um, and realize that, oh, she's spent enough time here that she's learned that and we don't have to actually see her actively think about doing it. Yeah. And I, I really like that you brought up that detail about crossing the street because that's that's something that I didn't notice, actually, to be mm. perfectly honest this time around. And I feel like that's the sort of detail that you pick up on with second and third and fourth viewings as you kind of let yourself reenter this world just because you want the comfort and then you realize just how deceptively rich it really is. And I think that's something that a lot of Miyazaki films have, that mm -hmm. the um, just little details that you know may not be right on the surface, but yield themselves up to you on, on repeat viewings. I, I, and I think that's really great. And I think that, I mean, if this is genuinely regarded as lesser Miyazaki, I, I'm not sure why, because <laughs> I, I think that... It's not as ambitious, maybe, as something like Spirited Away, mm -hmm. but I liked this better than Spirited Away. I think that this is uh, just, um, I don't know, I think Miyazaki captures moments in Kiki's development as a person mm. that are just so understated and yet evocative that, I don't know, I, I, I would happily watch this again and just, you know, having notice those details, allow myself to notice other details and just, I don't know, luxuriate in the richness of it all. <laughs> this is the words I want to hear. <laughs> that makes me really happy. I, I think part of the reason why um, you might be picking up on that with, with Kiki is that with Spirited Away, Chihiro is kind of an ordinary girl thrust into extraordinary circumstances, kind of the same way that May is in Turning Red. But Kiki is an extraordinary girl or someone who like has been told that she's been extraordinary for all of her life up until this point, who is thrust into very ordinary circumstances. And she's learning to live and cope with that, I think. And there's something really special about that because we don't really get a lot of stories like that. And I think that that is a little bit more of a universal like human experience. Like you see a lot of people who 
feel like they are the main character in the story and then realize like suddenly, oh no, there are other people here who are experiencing the same things that I am, but maybe they're just as important as me. Like not everybody is the main character because everybody is important, if that makes sense. And I, I think that that's one of the special things about Kiki is that um, she is an extraordinary person and everybody around her clearly thinks very highly of her and they're very kind and good and gracious to her, but they're also just as special and important as she is. You just don't get to see quite as much of their stories in that way. I, I like how Miyazaki allows these supporting characters to have moments of such kindness that they're revealed as genuinely good people. It's mm-hmm. so easy for a protagonist to, you know, because they're the protagonist, um, to really focus in on them being especially kind. So, for instance, there's a sequence in this film where Kiki uh, shows up to an uh, an older woman's home to pick up a delivery. The delivery's not ready, so Kiki just sort of like helps her out with you know lighting a fire in the oven and and helping her make a baked dish. And it's just it's very nice of Kiki to do that. And lots of films I feel like would really want to lean into exploring different ways that Kiki is a very kind person and a very special person because of her kindness. Mm -hmm. What I like about the rest of the film is that Miyazaki kind of gives all the characters kind of those moments where they go out of their way to be kind, where they are especially forgiving or understanding or generous. And it's not a, it's not a pie in the sky sort of Pollyanna-ish kindness where sort where it's painting this world where you know everybody's just this wonderful cherubic kindness machine mm-hmm. but it, it feels like a film that has a wants to present a vision of the world that is uh suffused with goodness and yes it's it's hard to make a film about goodness compelling because where does the conflict come from then and i think this film still manages to be interesting while holding on to that yeah yeah and i kind of want to talk a little bit about that internal conflict too because so much so much of that internal conflict really feels like kiki's just had a bad day and that's <laughs> it and that's all there is but this movie does such a great job of showing that internal conflict both through kiki's posture um like she's animated beautifully and also through the weather like i hmm. don't think there are very many movies like this that just use a sudden rainstorm to like evoke the same feeling in quite the same way like usually it's I don't know um, I think about like Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice where there's a sudden rainstorm and then like very um, theatrical confessions of love slash hate between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy but with this one it's just there is a lot of driving rain and it's been a long day and Kiki is soaked through because she's been flying on her broom through the bad weather. And that's literally it. It's it's not really making any much of a statement about this is anything special. It's just this is a really rough day. And that's all that there is to it. And there are a couple of other moments where there's just like heavy rain when, in this movie that I really noticed this time that really just felt like a reflection of Kiki's mood without trying to emphasize it too much. Yeah. It, and that scene with the rainstorm where she's, she's flying through this driving rain. I mean, there is, there is a, that does immediately it's uh, that sequence is bookending 
a scene where she makes a delivery to this uh, girl who's having a birthday party. Mm-hmm. And the girl's a little rude or a lot rude, I guess. But, you know, it's it's not like monstrous rudeness. She's just, you know, yeah. she's a little bit selfish and she's a little bit rude. And that kind of bums Kiki out. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, again, and that's really all it is. She's just a little bummed out and it's raining and it kind of stinks. And she's she ends up catching a cold. And that's just kind of a bummer. Yeah. But... That and that I think is all the film needs to provide sort of the the conflict and the dramatic impetus to keep with to keep moving forward and not stagnate without forcing like without forcing a kaiju into fight <laughs> into the into the climax. Yeah, I guess the if there were a kaiju in this movie, it would just be made out of quiet disappointment, which doesn't yeah. really like translate very well into yeah, a sea monster. It, it would be it'd be the sort of kaiju that sort of come in and just kind of subtly criticize the job you did cleaning your your room you know <laughs> yeah or just bored you while you're minding the shop or something yeah it, and i i think that that's just i don't know that kind of quietness is is really wonderful to see in this film i also really liked um the way that miyazaki evokes emotions just through through the visuals so the there's a scene where uh kiki has this this kind of a, a fun little outing with a, a boy that she that she's met in town they're they're mm-hmm. friends and she's kind of enjoying getting getting to know him she she lets down the guard that she's had up to that point and they're just sort of hanging out and then like some other friends that he has show up and and sort of start talking to him and again they're not like trying to exclude her um nobody's being rude or mean they actually invite her to you know come hang out with them and yet there's something in her that kind of just like oh, I, I don't I don't want to, mm-hmm. why don't, why don't I want to? And she just sort of, she leaves. Mm-hmm. And there's a shot that Miyazaki has of her just walking along a, um, a highway. And she's the only person around. There aren't any cars, yeah. no other human beings, no planes in the sky. It's just her kind of walking slowly along the road. And it's just a wonderful image for evoking loneliness. But it's not like, again, it's not this operatic loneliness. It's just sort of the loneliness of a 13-year-old girl who feels left out but doesn't have a good reason to feel that way i think i hadn't thought about the highway specifically um because most of the time i think about the highway in the scene before when kiki and tombo are going down the highway because it's down a hill they're on the back of a bicycle like they're basically testing out an engine for this flying machine that tombo is building in his garage and um they're tearing down that hill and she's kind of like leaning into the curves to help him steer it. And it's a thrilling almost, scene. It's incredible. It's, it's flight without them actually flying, which is also just kind of um, something that Miyazaki does so well is, is flying scenes. But the fact that he's able to show that feeling of exhilaration while they're on the ground on two wheels at the same time, also incredible. Um, so most of the time when I think of that highway, I'm thinking of them going down and like that moment of connection that they're feeling. So I, ha- I hadn't made that connection of Kiki's loneliness going back up that same road and she's doing it on foot. Like she can't even fly because she doesn't have her broom with her either. So that, that kind of emphasizes it a little bit without calling attention to it. Yeah. And again, I, you know, this is just one of those things where I feel like that's why this film maybe for you is, you know, tell me if I'm right about this, but maybe that's why this film feels like such a comfort food movie is, mm-hmm. you know, it is kind of low stakes and pleasant, but there's also, 
you don't go on autopilot while watching it. There's always something more to notice or to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, that's, that's just, it's really nice. And it just gets the feeling of like feeling uncomfortable in your own skin in a way that doesn't feel judgmental. And it also doesn't feel wrong. Like everybody feels that way sometimes. And this one just happens to get that feeling and then also understand that someday it'll pass. Like you'll feel better again eventually. Um, yeah, yeah. I also just love um, there's there's a supporting character who kind of she doesn't try to talk Kiki out of her funk necessarily, but she does kind of she's one of those kind characters who shows kindness when she doesn't really necessarily need to. And I appreciate her willingness to just kind of pull Kiki out of like the situation that she's in, even though the situation that she's in is not necessarily a bad one. She just needs a change of pace. So there's, there's this artist who lives in the middle of the woods, whose name is Ursula, who spends all of her time like sketching birds and and talking about art. Um, and she kind of feels like, um, I don't know, the spark of like a spark of like life and energy that this movie doesn't necessarily have all like all the time and I don't think the movie needs it because if they did have that energy it would be very exhausting um but she's one of my favorite Miyazaki characters because she's just so comfortable and confident in her own skin and the fact that she's willing to like own up to the fact that she's been where Kiki's been and that it's going to be okay like I just I appreciate that yeah the I I like that character too and it also she's responsible for one of my favorite moments in the film where Mm -hmm. she brings Kiki back to her cabin out in the middle of the woods and, you know, she walks off to do something. So Kiki walks into the cabin alone and Kiki's brought up short by looking at one of the paintings that this artist has made. And there's just a solid 20, 30 seconds maybe where Miyazaki just kind of lets us look at the painting with Kiki. Like there's there's no like, there's not a lot of cross cutting between Kiki's face and the and the painting to kind of goose the audience into making some sort of specific connection about what we're supposed to be feeling or what the painting means it's just she walks into a room and she sees a strange striking painting and we just get to stop and look at it Mm -hmm. and i just love that i i love being able to just kind of be in a moment and not have the director tapping you on the shoulder telling you what to think it's just here's something cool why don't we look at it for a little while and that's just it's lovely yeah it's a great showcase too because I think that painting was done by some middle school students at least like, oh, really? according to the credits like that's that painting wasn't done by Ghibli artists I believe I'm, I'm pretty sure it's another piece of art that's done by somebody else and they're just taking the time to showcase it as well it's, it's quite lovely well I, I'm really glad that you took the time to showcase this lovely work of art to me it was uh, a really nice discovery and I'm glad to be able to be making my way into some of the Miyazaki deeper cuts that I haven't seen yet. So we'll definitely have to watch some more Miyazaki later on down the line too. All right. Well, something to look forward to listeners. That is, that does it for this week's watch list segment. We've got uh, quite a treat for next week's watch list segment. If any of you are wanting to watch along with us, I am going to be introducing Sarah to one of my very favorite comedies of all time. It's the 1941 uh, Preston Sturge's film, The Lady Eve. My first Barbara Stanwyck movie. I and can't believe I haven't seen anything by her up until this point. One of the best comedies of all time, one of the best leading ladies of all time. It, I'm really excited to talk about it. That's coming up on next week's watch list segment. So listeners, if you are like Sarah and you're kind of have yet to be exposed to the wonderfulness of The Lady Eve, 
Uh, you can watch along and then listen to the discussion next week. It's going to be a good one, I think. I'm really looking forward to it myself. Uh, but that does it for the show this week. Uh, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 